2: I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
1: And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
2: And welcome to Skullduggery's special coverage of the 2020 virtual Democratic Convention. It's fair to say uh, this is going to be something of an experiment, both for the Democrats and for us. We're all used to covering traditional conventions in person with uh, cheering crowds, balloons, confetti. All that's uh, sort of uh, gone away with COVID, and instead we have something all- online. How this is going to play, nobody knows.
1: Yeah, it's a real challenge um, for the Democratic Party, and it will be for the Republicans when they get their turn next week. But I will say that this actually provides some interesting opportunities for us. In some ways, when people are all at home, it's easier to get interviews with some of the most important figures. And we've got a lot of them on Skullduggery. So over the next few days, we'll be interviewing to start with the head of communications for the DNC, Sochi Inahosa, who will give us a preview for the week. We'll be interviewing Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. We'll be interviewing uh, Jim Clyburn, who is clearly a uh, important advisor to Joe Biden, and who will be a speaker. And we'll even be interviewing a Kennedy, Joe Kennedy, who's in a very tight race with. Ed Markey up in Massachusetts. Um, So all of those guests and a ton more. It's going to be a really interesting week and be very interesting to see whether the Democrats can make lemonade out of lemons uh, in this uh, new era, as you put it.
2: And we actually have a little news uh, today with this uh, really interesting lineup of Republicans speaking tonight, uh, including a surprise former congresswoman from Staten Island who we're going to tell you about in a moment. And uh, we're going to start it out with uh, the aforementioned Sochi Inahosa, the uh, communications director for the DNC. So let's get right to it. So, we now have with us Sochi Inahosa, the communications director for the Democratic National Committee. Sochi, welcome to Skullduggery.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: So, uh, big night, big week for you folks. And I'm looking at the newly released schedule. And among the big speakers tonight, I see the Honorable Christine Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey. John Kasich, of course, and Susan Molinari, who was the keynote speaker at the Republican Convention in 1996. So are we covering a Democratic convention tonight or a Republican convention?
3: You are covering a convention that is set to unite America. And that is what um, we hope to do with our convention. That's the theme of our convention for the next four days and we believe that it's important that this we make sure that we're including everyone and not excluding everyone we understand that regardless of who you voted for in 2016 or whether you voted in a democratic primary or whether you have never voted at all and you're a first-time voter that it's important to bring everybody together that's the only way we win we the only way we win is if We make sure that we have the broadest coalition possible um, and not just focus on one subset. And so you're going to see some of that tonight. You also have folks like, Senator Bernie Sanders speaking, you have Michelle Obama speaking, you have some of the stars of our party. And so there's a lot in store for tonight and the next four days. And we're really excited to showcase not only our talent, but the stories of the American people and of others who don't necessarily agree with us on everything, but understand this election is important. So very close
2: follow up on that. Molinari is a pretty big catch. She was the Republican Congresswoman from Staten Island. She was a member of the House GOP leadership? How'd you get her?
3: Well, I think people are frustrated with Donald Trump right now. And I think that that's what you'll continue to see over the next few months as we head to the election. People have seen that there are more than 5 million people who have coronavirus. There are... Tons of folks who have passed away from this. I think a lot of us know someone or um, either have a family member or know someone who had coronavirus. And I think that right now people are just fed up and they want the steady leadership. So I think that you'll continue to see all sorts of folks from all walks of life come and endorse Joe Biden.
1: But just to follow up on Mike's question, Sochi, I mean, was there a concerted effort on the part of the DNC to reach out to Republicans to convey that unifying message? Or in any of these cases, did any of them actually raise their hands and come to you and say, we want to be part of this?
3: Well, I think that is no secret that a few of these have already spoken out against Donald Trump and others. You know, we want- to make sure that the program reflected the diversity of our party, which it does, but also reflects the diversity more broadly um, and make sure that we are bringing in independents and Republicans and others so that we have the broadest coalition possible.
1: So we will give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the message, but we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is this: this is a convention like no other convention that has ever transpired. It's in the middle of a pandemic. It is virtual. Tell us a little bit about what the plans are for the next few days, how you pull this together. And I'm specifically interested in how do you make up for the fact that you won't have a kind of a central stage where all the action is, you're not going to have balloons and confetti falling from the roofs, you're not going to have delegates screaming madly. How do you recreate that kind of excitement that you traditionally see at conventions?
3: Well, this is an unconventional convention, to be quite honest with you. And these are unprecedented times. I mean, I'm sitting in my living room right now, and I don't think that you would ever imagine that the comms director of the DNC would be at home during a convention. And I think that you'll continue to see how the convention team made sure that there are innovative ways in order to bring in the American people. One, I think there are a few formatting things I want to point out. The convention program in previous years used to be six hours. It is now two hours every night. You used to have one podium and you used to have elected leader after elected leader after elected leader address the nation. This is a completely different. We're trying to make sure that we keep people in when they view this, that they see the stories of Americans. And there's no doubt that there will be people delivering remarks from their living room. Um, There will also be people delivering remarks from other locations, important locations across the country. One of the things that we have done, understanding that we want to make sure that we are engaging the American people, we're having watch parties, but we're also hosting drive-ins. And so people will be able to see the convention in certain drive-in locations across the country. Um, especially the last night when Joe Biden delivers his remarks. So we're finding different ways to sort of bring people in, but understanding that these are unprecedented times, and we wanted to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep people safe.
2: I just want to come back to um, the uh, Republican speakers lineup tonight, because I realize you want to emphasize the big tent theme for the Democratic Party, but you also have a pretty fired up progressive base. And when they look at some of these speakers, Susan Molinari was a corporate lobbyist for years for Google and lots of other big corporations. John Kasich is no fan of the Green New Deal, which is what the party platform is essentially
1: endorsing. And he signed one of the toughest anti-abortion laws in the country Uh, as well.
2: Yeah. What do you say to your uh, progressive base? about all these people who are speaking at your convention, whose views on many of their core issues are antithetical to what they believe.
3: Well, one of the things that I want to point out is that we have a party that is more united than ever. We had a platform process that, where we engage Senator Sanders supporters, Joe Biden supporters and others to make sure that we have the most progressive platform. You will see Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren making the case for Joe Biden, on stage as well this week, um, as well as a number of other stars in our party. And then I will also want to point out one thing that is very different that I sp- think, believe speaks to our base and just the broad coalition is the keynote this year. The keynote is not done by one person, it'll be done by 17 rising stars in our party from all across this country. It is a diverse coalition. And so I think that whenever you look at the program, it's not just going to be focus on one part of the party or another. It is on this broad coalition, and that is important. And so I want people to understand that we will continue to fight for our values and the progressive values that got Joe Biden elected. And if you look at our platform, that platform is extremely progressive, and we've worked with all sorts of stakeholders on that platform. At the same time, we need to make sure that we are bringing in the broadest coalition to win.
1: So you talked a lot about unity and the the one thing we know that is unifying the Democratic Party is antipathies toward Donald Trump. So very quickly, what is the affirmative message going to be? What are people who tune in tonight and over the next four nights going to take away from this convention in terms of the message?
3: So absolutely, unity is the top message of the week. The other thing I will point out in terms of tonight is the theme is we the people. We have these three crises, which are coronavirus, um, the economy, and also the racial unrest. Not only will we highlight, as you mentioned, Donald Trump and everything he has done to hurt our country, but we will highlight and lift up Joe Biden and how he will build back better. And I think one difference, one major difference that you will see between our convention and the Republican convention is that this convention won't just be about Donald Trump. We are gonna highlight Joe Biden's career, Kamala Harris's career, and lift up their plans for the American people. I can guarantee you that the Republican convention will not necessarily have an affirmative message. It will be focused on fear-mongering. It will be focused on attacks on the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris. But I think that you'll see a very stark difference between our convention, which hopes to lift people up and lift up the real stories and lift up Americans, versus the Republican convention, which will seek to divide us. Sochi, you
2: worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. How is the Biden-Harris campaign going to avoid the mistakes of the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 that led to her defeat?
3: The answer is organizing everywhere. One of the things that we did after 2016 is we built an infrastructure to hand over to our nominee. That included data tech. That included putting organizers in on the ground whenever... Our candidates were already in primaries and not necessarily always focused on battleground states. We moved organizers into battleground states. We trained them early and often. We made sure that not only were we uplift or were we were making or are having our data secure and made doing everything that we can to strengthen our data, but we have increased things like cell phone numbers in the voter file. So it is the core infrastructure of the Democratic Party and the DNC that we built up to hand over to Joe Biden. And what you will see from these two candidates is that they will continue to talk to voters in these states even if there is a pandemic, our tactics may have changed. We might not be knocking on doors because I think that right now, someone were to knock on your door, you probably wouldn't answer it. We're in a pandemic right now, but you are text messaging those writers. You're calling them. You're trying to find other ways well, to contact add, them.
2: I wouldn't answer the door and I also don't pick up the telephone because of all the robocalls. Oh, we we're gonna get telephone. an Isakoff rant I about reach people like me?
3: I will tell you, you, you might be the only one, but there are a lot of people who are picking up their phones now that they are at home. And one of the things that we did, even before we knew that there was going to be a pandemic, is we purchased a number of cell phone numbers to beef up our voter file. Which, if you go back, if now looking back, was a smart decision because we're text messaging voters. I can, I don't know how many text messages I've gotten over the last 48 hours to just say, hey, can you pick up a volunteer shift? And I like to respond to them and have a conversation with them because I want to see how they are communicating with the voter and they follow back up with me the next day. So again, we are using different tactics, but the work does not change. The work continues.
1: Sochi, you're from Texas. You're from a prominent political family, Democratic political family in Texas. Is Texas truly in play this year?
3: Texas is in play, and I will say that, yes, the poll numbers in Texas um, obviously look dangerous for Donald Trump, and if I were Donald Trump, I would be worried about it, but the only way that we do this and the only way that we eventually turn Texas blue is by investing and making sure that we're talking to voters there, and you have seen from the campaign under Jen O'Malley Dillon's leadership that Texas is on their map. That That is a place where they are are investing and working with the party infrastructure there to make sure that we are contacting voters. At the end of the day, regardless of whatever poll says, a poll is just a snapshot in time. And the only thing that's going to matter is turning out those voters and making sure that they can vote in this pandemic.
2: Danny mentioned uh, an elephant in the room earlier, the unconventional convention, nobody in attendance actually in Milwaukee. But the other really big elephant in the room right now is the Postal Service and what's going on with the uh, cuts in funding and uh, rearrangement of uh, of postal services. Now, I know the Speaker Pelosi has said the House is going to be called back next week, I believe, to uh, push through funding for the Postal Service. But how worried are you right now about these cuts in the Postal Service? And just to add on top of that, I know you want to make this all about the Trump donor who's heading the Postal Service. But when you look at the experience in New York, where it took months to get the results of the uh, Democratic primaries in those districts, it does raise questions about whether, even under optimal postal service uh, services, the states and counties are equipped for mass mail-in balloting and to count those ballots.
3: I think there are a few things there to unpack. One is that absolutely Donald Trump and Republicans will try to find every way to make sure that um, not everyone has their voice heard. And you've seen that with cuts cuts to the postal service, you've seen, that and trying to discredit vote by mail, um, even though the president himself (laughs) votes by mail, members of his family vote by mail. Um, DHS and officials under him have said it's safe to vote by mail. His own daughter-in-law said that they should vote by mail. The RNC is targeting voters to vote by mail. Um, And so I think that he's been pretty transparent. Donald Trump has been transparent about the fact that if everyone turns out, everyone who is eligible turns out to vote, that he will lose this election. And it's, It is no surprise that he is trying to do this. Um, At the same time, we wanna make sure that everyone is able to cast their ballot. It might take a little bit of time to uh, count those ballots. Um, States are coming up with various ways to make sure that there is not only a vote by mail system and that every eligible voter can vote, but that there are safe in-person possibilities as well. What we saw in Wisconsin, and I'm sure you remember this, is in the primary, what happened is that they limited in-person voting locations during the pandemic. And what resulted there were extremely long lines. What we don't want to happen is that we are limiting options for voters. We do not want to limit options for voters. We want to make sure that they have a number of options during the pandemic, that they're early voting, that they're doing so safely, That um, and, and that if they have the option to vote by mail, that they take um, that option.
1: How much is the DNC focused on uh, litigation at this point in a post-election period. I mean, have you, how many lawyers do you have uh, preparing for the potential or even likely battles to come in the courts?
3: Well, we've already filed litigation in places like Wisconsin um, and Nevada, and we um, have filed litigation before in Arizona, um, and we are constantly keeping our eye on it. We understand that the Republican Party will be up to all sorts of shenanigans this election, and so we are closely monitoring this with the Biden campaign um, to make sure that if we do need to bring legal action, that we do so immediately um, to make sure that everyone who is eligible and wants to vote can vote.
2: But are you at all worried that you're essentially playing into a litigation battle that the Republicans want? When you file lawsuits, they file countersuits, you're responding to their lawsuits. And it seems to a lot of us that the real threat to you know one big threat to the integrity of the election is endless litigation in the courts that could drag on right up till January 20.
3: Well, we will absolutely protect the right to vote and we're not going to fall for shenanigans to delay the election in any way or anything that Trump is trying to do in order to disenfranchise voters. And so I think that from us and what we've done over the last four years, I, I want folks to remember that the chair of the DNC used to be head of the civil rights division at DOJ and knows a thing or two about voting rights and actually this is an area where he's extremely passionate about and given that we don't have a justice department that is necessarily looking out for the rights of voters right now We need to make sure that we are doing everything we can with our state parties and the Biden campaign to ensure the voting rights. And so, yes, am I worried about it? Absolutely. This election worries me every day and keeps me up at night because there's so much at stake. But we will do everything we can to make sure that every person who's eligible to vote um, can vote.
1: I know we got to let you go, uh, Sochi, but I've got two quick post-convention questions. Mm -hmm. Normally, after a convention, the candidate hopes and expects to get a bounce. I know there's been a lot of debate about in this unconventional convention, whether that would, will happen. And also candidates typically will you know, get on a bus with the running mate and their families and they'll travel across the country and see America. That's not gonna happen this time around. So what's the equivalent of that in a pandemic? What do you expect Biden? Well-
3: We've already seen a lot of enthusiasm with the ticket that was announced and with um, the selection of Kamala Harris as well. In the first 48 hours after her announcement, we raised $48 million, which is huge. And I think that you continue to see momentum on our side. Now, Yes, that is a snapshot in time and that is what's happening currently that doesn't we can't um, become complacent and we have to continue to work and organize and we understand that this is going to be a close race regardless. In terms of traveling, um, we will do what health experts advise us to do and we what we won't do is what Trump did in Tulsa, um, where he gathered a lot of folks in an arena for his ego without masks and you saw a spike in coronavirus cases. We won't put people at risk. Joe Biden will not put his staff at risk. Um, And what we will do is campaign safely. These are unprecedented times as I started off this entire interview with, and you see that not only in our convention, but you will see that in the way that we campaign through the fall, because what we're not gonna do is put people at risk.
2: Well, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, It's going to be a big week, uh, a lot to uh, look forward to. So um, thanks a lot, Sochi, and um, we will stay in touch as the campaign (laughs) unfolds.
3: Thank you so much.
2: now have with us our Yahoo News colleague, Will Ron, senior editor. Will, welcome to Skullduggery.
0: Great to be here. Thank you.
2: So you've got an interesting piece up on Yahoo News Now about covering conventions, what it's been like Mm -hmm. in the past and how different it's going to be this year with these virtual conventions. Tell us what the difference is.
0: The first and I would argue biggest difference, at least from the perspective of a reporter, is that your average reporter is gonna be covering this one from his or her couch in the
2: past. Actually, uh, the I, I, let me break in. Clydeman and I are both at the beach, respectively different beaches, <laughs> but we are both covering the, this convention from the beach.
1: As far as I'm concerned, if this is the way that uh, political conventions have been transformed, I'm good with it. <laughs>
2: we endorse virtual conventions at Skullduggery
0: (laughs) it's going to be fun it's going to be well it's going to be different at least but let's recall that conventions in years past so we're long past the point where we had real news coming out of conventions I think the last time we even had a VP reveal at the conventions was probably Dan Quayle in 1988 and, you know, it's been decades since we've had any sort of tension or question as to whether who the nominee was going to be, who the party is going to put forward as their standard bearer in November. We know all of these things. So it's always been about trying to figure out how to turn a newsless event into something that is newsworthy. And, of course, everybody sends lots of reporters there, but there's just simply not that much news to report coming out of them. So when you look at it that way, the virtual convention is really a long time coming, right? You don't actually need to have six or seven reporters from a particular news outlet to be there on the floor unless they're going out and they're seeing somebody like Roger Stone or some flack or campaign operative or hanger-on is going to get a little bit loose, give them a tidbit, give them a lead, give them something that they can then turn into a story down the line, meet somebody, cultivate some sources. But other than that, I mean, what have these in-person conventions been good for for a long time? Yeah, well, you
1: give away uh, the secret that the real reason we all say how important it is to go to these conventions is so that we can... um, tell great war stories and colorful anecdotes years later you lead your story with the story about walking away from your table at an Italian restaurant in Cleveland at the 2016 Republican convention coming back to find Alex Jones the infowars conspiracy theorist as i if i recall correctly feeding your spaghetti to another person <laughs>
0: Uh, Yes, and it was one of those bizarre moments that really only happen at conventions. The downside for me is that I, I left this dinner without having eaten and had to make my way back to Akron, which was about 40, 45 minutes out from Cleveland because, of course, everybody's scattered all over the place because the hotels fill up so quickly. But at least I got that anecdote. That was the most memorable thing that happened to me at least, at the 2016 Republican convention. I can't tell you, I was there on the floor, I can't tell you that much about the speeches or who I talked to in the spin room or anything like that. However, you do have these moments where you meet somebody you wouldn't have otherwise met and you get some weird story out of it and then we get to all talk about it. Yeah,
1: but the truth is that there are, there were some upsides to in-person conventions, right? I mean. You know, there there is actual reporting that you can do. You have access to the whole kind of political world, at least from one party at a national convention. You do get a sense of kind of the atmospherics uh, are not completely unimportant. They give you some sense of whether. Mm-hmm campaign or a party has momentum going into the fall general election, mm-hmm. you know, so there, there is some value. But you also argue in your piece that as strange as a virtual convention is uh, likely to be, that there may be value there as well.
0: Right. Because, OK, first and foremost, it's forced them. It's forced the parties and the candidates to get creative. And they have to put more thought into, or at least we're hoping they have put more thought into, about exactly what their message is for the general election and how they're going to convey it. The past conventions, basically, you had all of these speakers, you had this message and that message. This year, they're probably going to want sort of a tighter message going in. And they're going to have to think deeply. They're going to have to reimagine how they send that message to viewers, how they convey that. But also to your point about the look and feel of things, you do get a feel uh, when you're in person about uh, exactly how confident people are, how bullish they are on their candidates, how much the, the people who attend the convention actually like the candidate, or more of it feels like, listen, I wanted somebody else, but I'm going to settle for this guy. And also the viewers at home, they get a sense of the aesthetic of each party, which is different and also tells you something about the messaging and who they're trying to reach and how they plan on winning this in November.
2: So a couple things. First of all, I think we're going to have to have Alex Jones on this podcast for a rebuttal to the stealing uh, Will's spaghetti claim, because, you know, we're all about fairness on Skulldug. Right. right? Um, uh, right. We want to hear the other side. Uh, Number two, you know, in some respects, I think this is a metaphor for the changes in American life that are going to be across the board. How much of what we all did and uh, experienced pre-COVID, we still have to cling to when COVID finally disappears, whenever that will be. And I wonder if there's Mm -hmm. going to be lots of ways of doing business that will change permanently as a result of this. But to me, you know, the real tragedy, maybe that's a too strong a word, but the real loss here is that there were convention speeches that were stem-winders, that were memorable. Mm -hmm. For the Republicans, Gene Kirkpatrick, they always blame America first. Mario Cuomo for the Democrats in 84, come home America. Some of Teddy Kennedy's speeches uh, uh, over the years. These were speeches that were sort of an art form in a way that stuck in the imagination of American voters. And I really wonder whether, you know, in this virtual setting that can really happen
0: yeah it's a complete open question we really have no idea how and if these things are going to work i would add to your list of great convention speeches there barack obama in 2004 oh absolutely obama
2: illinois. should have yeah, mentioned that he's yeah. still
0: an illinois state legislator he's on his way to a landslide win to get him to the u.s senate out of illinois but this is a, a guy. I mean, I, I don't think that many people remember John Kerry's "I'm Ready for Duty" speech from that year. However, I remember
2: Barack his Obama, first line again, and that's says, about it. They,
0: yeah, exactly. Barack Obama again, then just a state legislator. He is able to go up there and he gives this speech and he talks about the unity of the blue states and the red states and how there's more. We have more in common than we have differences. And it was this incredibly important moment because it introduced the country to Barack Obama. And then four years later, there, you know, there you go, he's president of the United States. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say that I was, I was there. Mike might have been there as well in, uh, in Boston, in the crowd. And you know, Barack Obama already obviously was a a big deal. But I have never experienced anything quite as electric as being in that auditorium and listening to that speech. One of the lines was, uh, I think it was, we, we worship uh, an awesome God in the blue states and something about uh, being gay and, and like little leagues in the red mm-hmm. states or something yeah, like that. Yep. And, and speakers feed off of the audience. It is almost impossible to imagine um, a speech, anything like that, where there isn't a live audience. I just don't see that happening.
0: Right. There's probably going to be just this extra layer of awkwardness to it. And this might be a problem because, again, going back to the Barack Obama speech, people in our world, we had an understanding that there's some out of Illinois, right? For the vast majority of Americans, this was their first introduction to Barack Obama. This was the first time they were going to see a man who was going to be president for eight years. And so it's so important for the parties to get those rising stars out there. And again, as you said, have them play to the crowd. Build off that energy in the crowd. Even on television, you can feel that tension in the room as somebody goes and gives a great speech. And it is now a completely open question whether any of the rising stars that the Democrats or the Republicans try to highlight this time, whether they're going to have that opportunity to springboard themselves into the national conversation. And this person who you may be kind of vaguely aware of becomes somebody who you look at them and you go, you know, that's somebody who could be president one day. The crowd is essential to that, or it has always been essential in the past, I don't know if that's going to work as we watch this on our computer screens, on our phones, and for the people who still have televisions on their TVs.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the big unanswered question or danger here is that these will seem too slick too well produced because I'm sure they'll have the best minds in t- TV planning these speeches and the and the optics uh, surrounding them. But you know there is something really missing when you don't have the feedback with the crowd. So one piece of news today, which a lot of us were taken by surprise, is this lineup of Republicans speaking tonight for the Democrats, uh, from Christine Whitman to Meg Whitman to John Kasich and Susan Molinari, who was a member of the House Republican leadership back uh, in the Newt Gingrich days, a keynote speaker at the Republican convention in 96. And she's speaking for the Democrats uh, tonight. Uh, Were you as surprised by that as I was? And um, how do you think this is going to play? Uh, yeah. Susan
0: Molinari was not on my bingo card this morning as I tried to figure out who the secret uh, (laughs) member of Congress would be. She, of course, comes from Staten Island's foremost political dynasty. Staten Island being a relatively conservative place in New York City, now has a Democratic congressman in Max Rose. But yeah, that does tell you something. John Kasich ran for president last time and picked up some delegates. It wasn't a particularly successful campaign, but this is still a guy. He had been a congressman and been a successful popular governor of Ohio. Christine Whitman, you mentioned, she was a member of George W. Bush's cabinet, of course. This also tells you how the Republican Party has changed and how the old guard or many members of the old guard are increasingly uncomfortable with the direction that the GOP has taken under Trump, it is sort of remarkable that we're going to see this many Republicans. It's not totally unheard of for an effector to come and speak at uh, the opposite party's con- uh, convention. We remember Joe Lieberman in 2008. Of course, Zell Miller in 2004, though that may be primarily for that time he challenged Chris Matthews to a duel. But uh, these are the things that at least when they're live and they're in person, this can really rev up a crowd, make them feel like they have the momentum, that they are growing as a party while the other party is shrinking.
2: I wonder whether the Republicans could find any prominent Democrat to speak next week at uh, Trump's convention.
0: (laughs) It's an open question. (laughs) Again, as the the parties have both changed shape, there are people – I mean, we knew this last time just on terms of a voter level – that there were uh, regular sort of yellow dog Democratic voters in the Rust Belt states that defected to Donald Trump last time around. I don't know if they're going to be able to turn that into – Any member of Congress or anything like that who uh, defected, I remember in 2012, Mitt Romney was able to get Arthur Davis, who had been a somewhat prominent Democratic member of the House, who was then toying with running as a Republican in Virginia. He was able to cross the aisle. He came and spoke at the Republican convention. But, yeah, it's it's, I, I mean, I don't know exactly who the Republicans could go and choose from, who they could go. And pick if there's anyone in these areas who's prominent enough and has switched parties and can come and speak for them. But it does say something to Democrats being able to unveil so many Republicans on the first night. It does tell you something about the possibility that you're going to have, like you had Reagan Democrats in the 1980s, maybe we'll have Biden Republicans in the come. And if that's true, that's, that's going to be a serious, serious problem for Republicans, at least over the next decade.
1: Well, back to Susan Molinari in uh, Staten Island, um, living in Brooklyn and occasionally going to some of the other boroughs. I have been on the Molinari Ferry, the uh, Staten Island (laughs) Manhattan Ferry was uh, Christian, the the Molinari uh, Ferry. I think it was named after the father, though, Guy Molinari, um, who I think passed a couple of years ago. I wonder if he would be a Biden Republican, (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's impossible to know, of course. I mean, Staten Island is a place that went for Donald Trump. And um, it is sort of a Republican-leaning district. They seem to have a formidable Democratic incumbent there, member of the House, a young guy, Max Rose, a veteran. But the Molinaries, they really are kind of the Kennedys of Staten Island. Uh, so in that, <laughs> in, in that very local sense, it, it, it does mean something. And you let's
2: remember, mean, Pete Davidson is the king of Staten Island, so I don't know how to <laughs> that. In.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, other than Pete Davidson, the Molinaries are, are, well, they're some of the more prominent people. Again, I'll stick with there the Kennedys of Richmond County,
1: but that, <laughs> okay. but this, uh. Well, back to the conventions for uh, one last beat here. It seems like most people are sort of assuming that with uh, moving on to a virtual convention means that the old traditional convention is finally being added to the dustbin of history. Um, why Why should that be the case? I mean, clearly they will you know both parties will learn things about more. Uh, you know, being more digitally savvy about these conventions and new, uh, more innovative ways to reach voters and reach audiences. But shouldn't we expect that, uh, you know, we get past this pandemic four years from now, we will be doing conventions in in big arenas
0: again? I mean, I would hope so. And I think it, it, it matters a great deal on how successful these conventions, the Democratic one this week, the Republican one next week, it's going to, I think, matter to some great deal how successful these conventions are. If the Democrats, they just have a historic, if this is the moment, this convention, that Joe Biden takes his significant lead and opens up just a huge lead over Donald Trump, the Democrats think it's like, wow, that went really well. He acted stagecraft to the fact that it, it seems kind of more in keeping with the times. I don't know. Maybe it works. But I can tell you just on a, on a personal level, I hope we're doing it out of an arena four years from now. I hope that it's big crowds and it's people dancing and it's people who are excited and it's speakers feeding off of the crowds. Conventions have always, in a sense, been somewhat annoying for those who are, of us who like to cover them, while at the same time it's been great. It's, a, it, it's been a fun party to go to. I'm hoping this is not the last we see of them. I'm hoping that a few years from now, we're going to have both the Republicans and the Democrats having these big filled out shows with the falling balloons, everybody with the state placards and people giving big speeches. I mean, the thing that we've always wanted out of these things, right, we've always wanted a return to a contested convention or a brokered convention, not so secret hope is journalists for years. Now I'm just hoping we just have an old convention again.
2: Well, I'm just hoping we can continue to watch it from the beach, which is um, where I <laughs> hope to be four years from now. Uh, but anyway, Will, thanks uh, for joining us and uh, sharing your insights and inspiring us to send out an invitation to Alex Jones to join Skullduggery. <laughs> so right, that so
1: that can engage in a little more both siderism
2: <laughs> Yeah, both, <laughs> yeah, <sides-ism. exactly>. both <laughs> that seems sides is both sides from our critics that I am a both sides guy enough. Of that. Right, all right. Listen, I have
0: witnesses and I'll volunteer them if I need to do so.
2: <laughs> okay, get after David Stu. All, all right, right. <laughs> thanks a lot, Will.